Hello, and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast, or the Roundup Podcast, depending on which day you're listening to me say those words. Kind of call it both, which is bad branding, but haven't been able to keep it straight yet. This is your host, Jeff Eager, and the only voice you will hear on this podcast today. We've had quite a few guests lately. Hope you've enjoyed them. Today, it's going to be just me talking. We haven't done one of these in a while. For better or worse, that's what we're going to have today. We will have more guests in the in the future. I enjoy doing the guest interviews quite a bit, actually. I've learned quite a bit from each of the folks that I've interviewed on the podcast, and I think that we are bringing a source of information to people that you otherwise can't really get in Oregon with those interviews. And I definitely think we that's a contribution that we can make that I want to keep doing. Just frankly, didn't have the time this week to get someone squared away, but I will make sure to do that in the future. Longtime readers of the Oregon Roundup and I guess more recent listeners to the podcast know that The Oregon Roundup is nothing if not eclectic. We do stuff from talking about election politics in Oregon to kind of more thematic issues of national, international policy and culture. We do serious stuff. We do very silly stuff. We publish an imaginary world in which which years are people in a high school, students in a high school, and the, the kind of discussions that they might have. So if you've been with us for a while, you're used to quite a range of different content coming from from us. And this week was was no different. This morning, so I'm recording this on Thursday, January 26th in the afternoon. This morning I published a piece with the with the title We Need More Humans. And the the crux of that piece argues that while we we by we I mean our betters focus on the the amount of carbon dioxide being emitted into the atmosphere because of concern that that carbon dioxide has and will continue to increase the temperature of the earth that the real crisis we need to focus on is population decline it's 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 a f- fact that folks predict experts predict that global population will start to decline at the end of this century, toward the end of this century, kind of in the last two-thirds of this century. And we don't really know exactly what that's going to look like. And the way that that kind of fact interacts with the focus on carbon dioxide is that, you know, the more people there are, absent other changes, the the more carbon dioxide will be emitted. We're focused on folks that go to places like Davos. People like Greta Thunberg are focused on on reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that is emitted by people by kind of cajoling them into changing the way in which they live or the way in which they work. For various reasons, I, I think that that effort is destined to fail in large measure because to get there, you basically need to convince all the people that live in countries in Africa, South America, and other places that are, are not wealthy yet, 
you need to convince them to either forego or delay the accumulation of wealth. Because the, the truth is that in today's world, yes, you can drive a gas-powered vehicle or you can drive an electric vehicle. But right now, it's more cost-effective to drive a gas-powered vehicle. So if you are either restricting the ability to ch- uh, people to choose what kind of vehicle they want to drive, you can do that, but it's going to come at a cost. And that cost is going to be borne by the consumer or the overall growth of the economy, maybe both. But for each kind of restriction you put on a growing economy to try to diminish the amount of carbon dioxide they put into the air, there's a cost. And the cost to developing nations is how long it takes them to get to the type of wealth and the, ty- and the benefits of that wealth that we in the Western world take for granted. And that's just asking too much of them, quite frankly. I just don't think it's going to happen. And, I, and for that reason, I think that the effort to reduce carbon emissions via government restraint and even government incentives is bound to fail, as it has failed so far. And so you're, you're left with a situation in which, at least for the foreseeable future, more people is going to need more carbon in the atmosphere. And the folks who are most strident on the climate change beat have pointed out the fact that they believe that more people is bad, or it is bad to have more people. Our population is growing too much, that the growth in population is a threat to future as a species and certainly a threat to the planet that we occupy. That's been a consistent theme of the more radical portions of the environmental left for decades now, and it has found certainly a new new birth in the context of the climate change debate. I think, and this is mostly what the piece I wrote is about, I think that 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 misses what is on the horizon for us as a species and what is on the horizon for us as a species is, like I said, a decline in population. And one of the things that can happen when you have a decline in population, again, we've we've not really dealt with this on a global scale before when human population begins to decline and does so in a way that is, first of all, known to the population of the planet because we're all interconnected now and we all can gather that information in ways that in medieval Europe, for example, they couldn't. If we know that the population is declining and the population will, barring some major change, continue to decline, how does that impact things? To me, it seems most likely that the decline in population and which will first impact the decline in young population and thus working age population will reduce the global wealth because you have fewer people working, more people kind of benefiting from the work that fewer people are producing. And on a broader scale, you have less imaginative, intelligent people doing imaginative and intelligent things. We are in a world now Resource, resources are not, resource scarcity is no longer the limiting factor on our, on our population and on our species. 
and we will soon be entering a world in which, and we are, many of us are there already, many societies on the planet are there already, where the limiting factor is the number of people that we have. What happens in a world where wealth is declining because the number of people are declining? To me, that seems like it's going to be chaotic and there's going to be all kinds of social strife and it's going to be deeply unpleasant. And from from that standpoint, the people that are looking at that, and as I mentioned in the piece, my kids will be alive when this happens in, you know, say 40 years when the change in population tips into the negative. So that it's not a fanciful far future thing. It's going to happen soon. And, and what will they think looking back at the fact that in our day and age, a primary concern was how much carbon dioxide people are putting into the air and the fact that people by their nature put carbon dioxide into the air it will i think seem like a a rather silly if not harmful and if not fatalistic worldview to them it will seem like we are whistling past the graveyard as they say and they will wonder why we weren't recognizing the risk associated with a declining human population over the long term. I could be wrong about that, and I've gotten some emails back from folks already that, with a, a few critiques of my argument that, that I think are well taken. One, one type of critique is, well, Jeff, you can't possibly think that there are only two ways to reduce climate change, those being the regulatory approach we're undertaking now, and the second of which being the reduction in human population. Well, no, I don't, I don't really think those are the only two ways, but I, I do think that those are the only two ways that the government is likely to be able to claim or governments are going to be able to claim that they are impacting climate change. And I think that that's really, frankly, what more of this is about than actually impacting climate change. If you look at the data, the Paris Climate Accords, which are was kind of the biggest set of changes that a lot of countries have agreed to, to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, that doesn't even materially change the temperature down the road. And yet, it, it was viewed when the United States pulled out of it in the Trump administration that we were, you know, dooming the polar bears to a life of endless swimming in an iceless Arctic. No, because even the regulatory approaches favored by people that are espoused to be the most concerned about climate change don't make a material difference in the outcome. They don't make a material difference in the temperature. And it gives one the idea that more of it's for show than otherwise, and more of it is to use a term I really don't like, but I think applies here, virtue signaling, which isn't to say that we don't need to be cognizant of climate change and its impacts, positive and negative, in the relatively short run. It just is to say in the hierarchy of things like kind of societal global problems that we face, it will soon, I believe, look like a dalliance, like a detour from what is truly important and what is truly threatening to our future as a species and our ability to continue to improve our qualities of life 
on this planet and elsewhere eventually. The other line of critique that I've received so far is that, well, you make the assumption that wealth will decline as population declines and that lifespan or how long we live will decline as the population declines. And that's a good critique. I didn't do a good enough job of explaining that assertion that I made in the piece. And one reader pointed out to me rightly that I I offered that assertion without support. And he observed that, you know, the wealthiest places on earth right now, Western Europe, Japan, and the United States are either declining in population or growing very slowly. Whereas the, the least wealthy parts of earth the developing nations are actually their population is increasing and that's 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 a good point and one i should have addressed in in the piece but i'll address it now that's all true but one of the reasons why we in the developed world and the wealthy world have been able to continue to become more wealthy over time is that there is a labor force in the developing world that is not yet wealthy and that is increasing in population And so as China was developing, they produced a ton of products that were bought by wealthy countries, including the United States. Even China now, as of this past year, flipped into population decline after being kind of the poster child of population increase alarmism in recent decades. It's losing population. India will soon overtake China as the most populous country in the world, and then India is going to start going negative in the coming decades. So without a young, growing population of people working, can we continue to become more wealthy is the real question. And we've never done that before. We haven't seen that happen before. And especially in the context of the kind of social welfare states that we in wealthy countries live, where the old are benefited by the labor of the of the young i just don't see how that math continues continues to work and maybe it's true that robots will create so much stuff that it won't matter how many working age people we have and we can all just sit in our retirement homes and live off the fruits of the robots we've created Maybe, but maybe not. And it sure seems to me that the economic and the social impact of having a declining population is one that we really haven't reckoned with as a planet yet, and one that will, uh, before we know it, uh, supplant uh, the other concerns that we have right now, uh, and in particular, uh, the overarching um, kind of drumbeat of... um, climate stuff and of the obsession with uh, carbon dioxide. Who knows? That was uh, kind of an unusual piece for me to publish today. Hope you enjoyed it if you read it. If you haven't read it, uh, go ahead and read it. Uh, I meant it to be thought-provoking and a little bit outside the norm uh, for what we publish here at the Oregon Roundup. Um, And uh, and hope it's succeeded in that regard. Um, So uh, briefly to a piece of Oregon news uh, demonstrating the eclecticism of the Oregon Roundup. Um, 
Uh, State Treasurer Tobias Reed is pushing back on fossil fuel, a fossil fuel divestment bill. This is a, a story from the um, from the Willamette Week. Um, some progressive legislators are pushing a bill to require uh, Oregon's PERS system to divest itself from uh, carbon producing companies. Uh, presumably this would mean like oil companies and stuff like that. Uh, the state treasurer, Tobias Reed, with whom I went to college, by the way, um, is he's a Democrat as well, but more moderate than these folks. Um, and uh, and he wrote back to these legislators saying, well, hold on, my job is to maximize the, um, the return on these investments uh, for current and future retirees of, uh, in Oregon, people who work for state and local government. Um, and, and this, of course, he's, he's right, that that is his job. Um, and, um, and he's right to assert that fact. The, the other side of the argument is that even if um, these progressive legislators got their way and Oregon divested itself from uh, from fossil fuel related companies, um, what would the impact be on carbon dioxide on the planet? None. It would be none. Um, Oregon doesn't matter when it comes to that kind of stuff. We don't have enough money. There's not, even though our PERS system is huge and underfunded and underwater, uh, it, it's not nearly big enough to impact um, the amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the air, let alone impact. Uh, the the temperature that we're going to have on the planet in 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, it's, it's meaningless. It's more of the virtue signaling. Um, and um, and it's, it, it's heartening, quite frankly, to see a Democrat elected official in Oregon stand up to that kind of alarmism, the kind of extremism that we're seeing on this issue. Um, and and it's, it's, it's heartening, too, uh, to see kind of the the conflict between two core constituencies of progressives in Oregon. Uh, you have public employees, current public employees, retired public employees whose unions uh, sustain uh, democratic campaigns, fund them to a huge degree, and, uh, and basically invest on a biannual basis uh, in making sure that the people with whom they negotiate uh, are the people they want to negotiate with, um, and, uh, the, and climate alarmists and environmentalists. And these are two of the, if not the two, most important constituencies of, uh, Demo- of the Democrats in, in Oregon. And this issue certainly cues up the fact that those two constituencies aren't always going to be on the same page about stuff like this. Um, and so it's uh, the left and the progressives in Oregon in, in particular do a pretty good job of staying on the same page. They try to stay in lockstep and they're good at staying in lockstep. That's why they've uh, held power for as long as they have here in part. Um, but here you see that they, they are, in fact, in conflict, and it'll be interesting to see how that um, how that story shakes out. Um, finally, today, uh, f- in furtherance of our goal of eclecticism, uh, we have something that I I thought was funny, uh, and you may or may not think this is funny, but we're going to do it anyway. And I may end up publishing a piece 
uh, based on this at some point. Um, and so here, here goes. Um, so you may have heard of a computer program called ChatGPT. ChatGPT is uh, an artificial intelligence program that uh, you can tell to, uh, it, it's kind of like a souped up version of Siri or whatever the voice is on the Amazon uh, thingies in your home that you can say, hey Siri, uh, what is the temperature going to be today? And she'll, on your phone, and she'll spit back an answer. Well, chat GPT is that uh, on steroids uh, significantly, and, and allegedly the AI portion of it is that it adapts and learns based on what people are asking it and presumably other stuff that gets published out on the internet. Um, and, and it can write stories for you. So a lot of writers um, are concerned that, and journalists, frankly, are concerned that chat GPT or things like it will uh, soon replace people who write for a living because it does actually a pretty good job of writing about a topic when you tell it to write about a topic. So uh, who knows whether that happens or not. Um, but I thought I'd get into it and um, and have a little fun with it. And I did that uh, earlier this week. Uh, and I thought I'd read some of the uh, some of the responses I got. So um, <laughs> but the first one I put in was, is Kamala Harris smart? Here is the response from chat GPT. Kamala Harris is a highly educated and accomplished individual. She has a law degree from the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, and has had a long and accomplished career in politics, serving as a district attorney, attorney general, and United States senator. As a senator, she has served on several committees, such as the Judiciary Committee, the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, and the Select Committee on Intelligence. She has also been a vocal advocate for various social and political issues, such as climate her, pardon me, criminal justice reform, affordable health care, and climate change. Her experience and education demonstrate that she is a highly intelligent and capable individual. However, it is not fair to judge someone's intelligence based on their profession or education alone. Intelligence is a complex and multifaceted concept that cannot be reduced to a simple label. I, th I thought that that caveat at the end was uh, was telling. Um, next one, why does Joe Biden slur? Here's the answer. <laughs> I'm not sure why Joe Biden is slurring his speech, as I am a computer program and my knowledge is cut off in 2021, and I cannot give you an accurate answer on that. However, I can tell you that slurred speech can be caused by a number of factors, including medical conditions such as stroke, or neurological disorders, or as a side effect of certain medications. It can also be caused by alcohol or drug use. If you are concerned about Joe Biden's speech, I would recommend consulting a qualified medical professional for an accurate diagnosis. This next one I was kind of disappointed in, but it's still funny. Question, why do liberals drive Subarus? I am not aware of any evidence that suggests that liberals are more likely to drive Subaru cars than any other group. People of all political ideologies can drive Subaru cars for a variety of reasons, such as their reputation for being reliable and safe, their all-wheel drive capability, or their eco-friendly features. 
It is a stereotype that it is not that is not based on any factual evidence, and it would be unfair to generalize people based on their political beliefs or car choices. People make their car choices based on a variety of factors such as budget, personal preference, and practicality. <clears throat> I stand corrected, ChatGBT. And uh, <clears throat> two more here. <clears throat> Uh, the next the next question I asked is Stacy Abr- is Stacy Abrams an election denier? Stapr- sorry, Stacy Abrams is an American politician and voting rights activist who was a candidate for governor of Georgia in, in 2018. <clears throat> she has acknowledged the outcome of the 2018 Georgia governor's race, in which she lost to Brian Kemp and has advocated for voting rights and fair elections. It is important to note that the term election denier is often used to describe individuals who refuse to acknowledge the outcome of an election or the validity of the electoral process. There is no evidence that Stacey Abrams has denied the outcome of the 2018 election or the validity of the election process. Oh, really? She has acknowledged the outcome of the race. Oh, really? and has been actively involved in efforts to improve the electoral process and expand access to voting. That part must have been written by Stacey Abrams herself. Now, finally, this is uh, <laughs> this one really cracked me up. Um, question. Who killed Mary Jo Kopechny? Mary Jo Kopechny was killed in a car accident on Chappaquiddick Island, Massachusetts, on July 18, 1969. The car was driven by Senator Ted Kennedy, who was also in the car at the time of the accident. Kennedy was able to escape the submerged car, but Kopechny did not survive. Kennedy did not report the accident to authorities until the following day, and he pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident causing personal injury. He received a two-month suspended sentence. The circumstances surrounding the accident and the delay in reporting it have been the subject of much speculation and controversy. Despite this, it is clear that Senator Ted Kennedy was the driver of the car when the accident occurred, and he was responsible for the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, which is... <laughs> which the chat GPT, uh, you know, months into its existence has, uh, has now come to a more logical conclusion than uh, uh, the entire American political establishment and media since, uh, since 1969 and pegs this straight on uh, Ted Kennedy. Uh, and so cheers, chat GPT. That's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening and thanks for reading. It helps us if you subscribe to the Oregon Roundup podcast on whatever podcast streaming device you like and that you use, be that Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Your subscription and listening to it via those um, those apps uh, help other people discover us. If you like what you hear on this podcast, leave us a five-star review on any of those apps and let people know why you like listening to us. Um, that also helps people find us and helps our reach uh, grow. Um, thanks, thank you to Stacy Hoblitzel, as always, for editing and producing this podcast. And we'll be in touch soon. Thanks for listening.